0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21. This is the word of God. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, God, there's a room full of people here who need you and whose hearts desperately need to hear from you. We pray this morning that through your perfect word, you will work in us and make us the people that you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name and by his strength. Amen. Please be seated. Well, welcome to Orchard. As we continue uh, in our series, we are now in the fifth sermon taken from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You know, when the Messiah, when God in flesh preaches, it's worth a careful listen. My wife, Michelle, a few weeks ago mentioned after the sermon, isn't it incredible when Jesus preaches how he cuts right to the heart through it all? Isn't that true? His words are just what we need to live the kingdom life. And as Sam Alberry said, I can do no better as pastor than to lead the sheep to the voice of Jesus. So what will the voice of Jesus cut through this morning? He'll cut right to the heart of materialism. Here's a great summary to kick us off by D.A. Carson. Materialism may be God's greatest rival, competing for the allegiance of human hearts. Not the least because constantly striving to secure one's life via possessions produces anxiety. In contrast with the materialistic concerns which occupy our attention most of the time, Jesus calls his disciples to put God first, both by giving priority to eternal issues... And also by trusting our Heavenly Father to meet our material needs here on earth. You can see that from this quote, I created our title for today's message God's Greatest Rival. Now, what do you think of when you think of the greatest rivalries of all time? Probably some of you go to sports, that's pretty natural for rivalries. Maybe it's Ohio State versus Michigan for some of you, or maybe Duke versus North Carolina. Army versus Navy might come to mind. Uh, I think back a few years in my own life, the Detroit Red Wings versus the Colorado Avalanche. Man, you've got to hate one of those teams. (laughs) What about the U.S. versus the Soviet Union in ice hockey? Remember that? Or really versus the Soviet Union in anything, right? For a long time. But there's also some non-sports things. Thomas Edison, huge rivalry with Nikola Tesla when it came to inventing. There are Coke people, and there are Pepsi people. Even more scary, there are Hatfields, and there are McCoys. Well, as all of these great rivalries share, ardent fans can only support, can only love one. You can't be devoted to the Broncos and the Raiders when they're playing against each other. Well, Jesus knows that there is a great rivalry between God and money in the battle for you. That's why Jesus teaches on it more than any other rivalry. You see, kingdom life is worked out in the details of your personal life. And Jesus calls you to choose your master, either God or wealth. And he calls you to choose your outlook on life, either faith or worry. If your heart has chosen wealth, then as you hear Jesus teach today, I hate to warn you, but you're going to feel disheartened by a sinking feeling in what he's asking you to give up, to let go of. But if you choose God, then as you hear him teach, You should feel energized. You should feel inspired and relieved because Jesus has shown you how to spend your money, how to spend your life with his personal guarantee that it will not be wasted, stolen, lost, or destroyed ever. So let's read our first three verses again, and may the best God win. Number one where's your treasure? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus commands us, do not lay up treasures on earth. Why Jesus? Well, the pictures he gives to his original audience would have been very clear. You can put a huge amount of wealth and store it in fine clothing and cloth. But the moth larvae and vermin can chew it up. Rust can corrode your metal valuables. Thieves can actually dig through your mud brick walls and steal the money that you're keeping in your strongbox. Jesus goes right after the concerns of their heart. And these examples would strike a nerve for them. These examples may not strike a nerve for you today. Well, let me help. (laughs) Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where people get laid off and cars are crashed, where stock markets crash and phones are dropped face down. (laughs) But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where real estate never crashes, nor roughhousing children destroy, where expensive ER visits never happen, and where friends don't borrow your stuff and break it or never return it. And you might say that those are the things I'm worried about, I know. You can't stop these from happening here. So don't pile up your valuables here. The longest they can last you is until you die a few short years. So what is the alternative? Well, Jesus uses the word but to contrast heaven with earth. He moves from the negative to the positive command. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So we are to spend our lives piling up and laying aside and building treasure. It's just not here on earth. Why? Because if your treasure is stored in heaven, it's eternally secure. Nothing can damage or steal or reduce its value. There's no inflation, no economic collapses. There's no need for insurance because every act of God insures and protects your treasure in heaven. This positive command to lay up implies that we often have a choice in this life. One decision will lead to greater treasure and earthly reward in the present the other decision will store up future reward in heaven now remember this as jesus teaches he is for you he is warning you it's going to be very hard to make good money choices so let me help you in the moment of decision here's why eternity is better Here's another modern illustration I find very helpful, and I hope it's helpful for you. And I want to be clear before I say it. I'm not against remodeling in any way. We've done that to our house. But I think this really illustrates this lesson. Here's my question for you. How much remodeling should you do to your hotel room versus your home? You have limited money. You can't do both. Don't tear out that kitchenette and put a brand new kitchen and new expensive appliances in, in your vacation place. Save that for your real home, where you'll live for many years. Sure, you'd enjoy it for a week or two. It'd be nicer. But then you'd leave it behind. It it doesn't make sense, does it? Our lives are a mist that quickly evaporates, compared with our lives after death. If I gave you the choice today, 50 years of highly risky enjoyment, and happiness, or a hundred thousand years of guaranteed perfect joy. If I offered that to you, what would you pick? Well, Jesus reminds us, that's your choice. And if it wasn't convincing enough, he cuts deeper still, right to the heart, in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's the fact that we can't escape Our hearts are tied or connected with a steel cable to our treasure. Wherever our treasure goes, our hearts, like a chained prisoner, will follow. So if I search around in your life and I find what you most treasure, ah, there it is. You know what I will always, always, always find huddled next to it? arms tightly wrapped around, grasping it, your heart. That's what Jesus is saying. Throughout scripture, the heart is the center of one's being, involving emotions, reason, and will. As the message paraphrase translates this verse, it's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is, is the place you'll most want to be and end up being. I have to admit, I sometimes greedily hoard a brand new box of C's chocolates in the pantry. And sometimes when people come over, maybe even some of you, I hate to admit it, Michelle might suggest, you know what, maybe we should bring out after dinner some of those chocolates. If you were to ask her, where is Nate's treasure? She might say, it's on the top shelf in the pantry. <laughs> and his heart is definitely there also. Well, let me ask you. Where would I find your heart? What would I find it tightly grasping? And how about this? How safe is your treasure? How long will it last you? How long will you get to enjoy it? I think at this point, Jesus, the master preacher, has struck home, revealing the great rivalry. But at this point, he pivots then to a very strange illustration before going back to money in verse 24. Why is this next analogy great? Why is it perfect for his audience and what can we learn from it? Let's look at number two. How's your eyesight? Verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad your whole body will be full of darkness if then the light is in you or the light in you is darkness how great is the darkness what is this talking about well it's actually to do with my problem of sharing chocolates jesus is playing on an old jewish expression we kind of know how that goes right if someone gives you the evil eye it means more than an eyeball that's looking at you for the jews a good healthy eye meant a generous one. And an evil, unhealthy eye was a stingy one. And the eye, like the heart, guides the rest of the body either well or into things and over a cliff. So Jesus is saying, how you steward your money reveals if you see spiritual truths clearly or if you only see darkness, worshiping and serving your possessions. Furthermore, if the thing that you think is good light, keeping things for yourself in greed and stinginess, if what you think is good and smart there, if that's sin, how great is the spiritual darkness in your life? You can't even see the pain and disaster that's coming because you think you see clearly. So Jesus started by contrasting risky temporary treasures on earth with safe eternal treasures in heaven. And here he contrasts light and darkness Seeing and blindness, generosity and greed. So, again, I ask you this morning how good is your eyesight when it comes to money? Now, remember, your blindness won't feel like blindness. It feels like 2020 vision. You're good at making these decisions. But when you look back at those decisions or ahead at your plans for your money, are they mostly about your life here? How good are you at sharing the extra that God has given you? How angry would you be if he took it away and gave it to someone else? Jesus has just given us a spiritual eye exam. Why? Because he wants us to be healthy, he says. He wants your whole life to be full of light, not full of darkness. Are you willing to let him do surgery on your heart so that you can see? Do you trust him enough to hand over the pin to your bank account? To share big slices of cake with your brothers and sisters in Christ, with the poor, even if it means less for you here and now? It hurts, doesn't it? Maybe, Maybe there's a better, smarter middle ground in all this. Unfortunately, Jesus moves to yet another black and white illustration next. There's no middle ground in this great rivalry. It's love or hate, devotion or despising. Number three, who's your master? Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Is this true? Why can't we say, I only serve two masters in this life, forsaking all others, God and money. Can't we love both God and money? Jesus wants to make sure we understand the answer is no. He says, no one. So I'm sorry, you're not the exception. I'm not the exception. We can't serve two masters. You hate one, you love the other. You are devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Why is this true? Well, as I started, it's because it's a rivalry. They're competing for your heart, and they both refuse to tie. But scripturally, this verse gives us an even stronger metaphor than a rivalry. And for us to understand that, we need to understand two words better. One is serve, and the other is money. The word serve here means to be enslaved to a Lord, owner, ruler, or master. You cannot be enslaved to God and money. It makes total sense now. You're either a slave to God or a slave to money. When the call of God moves one way and the call of money moves in another direction, you are forced to answer only one call. To cling to one master in devotion. You can only believe the promises of one of those, either God or the promises of money. You're forced to despise, to disdain, to ignore the other. The other word money is the Greek word mammon, and it refers to material possessions that have become an idol. How do we know that money has become an idol? Look for strong feelings, strong thoughts. Jesus uses strong words here, does he not? Slavery, hate, love, devotion, despising. Listen to the words, strong words, that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 11. Listen for the words desire, love, and craving. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, O woman of God, this morning... Flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. This is a really dangerous business. It's no trivial matter. It is easy, is it not, to desire to be rich here? But its promises are lies, it's a snare. To trap, plunging people into ruin and destruction, to win the rivalry. Money promises things that it cannot give, peace and a full life. But instead, with it, we pierce ourselves with many pangs. So I ask you this morning, who is your master? Remember, God and money are masters that make all consuming demands. And you are a slave to one and only one. Jesus has made that very clear. Serve money and you will be anxious no matter how much you have. Serve God whose promises are true and you never need to be anxious again. Jesus will spend the rest of our passage this morning making a sustained argument on this fact. Number four, why are you anxious? Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus starts here with the phrase, therefore I tell you. We need to stop there for a minute. Because your heart will have to choose earthly treasures here or Eternal treasures. Because your heart will have to choose greed and stinginess or generosity and giving. Because your heart will have to choose slavery to God or slavery to materialism. I, the Messiah, God in the flesh, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life and the physical needs that you have. Jesus here has given the lesson Cutting straight to the heart again. And he'll use two illustrations to try to convince us this morning. But let's spend a minute on anxiety first. Won't that be fun? (laughs) To be anxious is to be troubled with cares. To look out for a thing. To seek or promote one's own own interests. And anxiety is at record-breaking highs in our society, even in Christianity, I think we could probably say even here at Orchard. But we have food and drink and clothing in almost unlimited measure, don't we? So will any of this apply to us that he's about to say? Will any of it help us here this morning? Well, let me ask you, why are you anxious? First, Notice that anxiety is always about the future. Second, you can never have enough to erase it. In fact, many people with more money are more anxious about losing it, interestingly enough. We say, I may be fine right now, but what if something bad happens in my future? And let me tell you, there is an unending list of bad things that are out of your control that could come in your future. Only God is in control. Only God can prevent them. And that is unsettling. Maybe some of the items, your bad things that could happen to you are worse than others. Maybe they're even more likely to happen to you. They worry us. They make us anxious. To be anxious then demonstrates a lack of trust in God who promises that he'll graciously care for all these things. So Jesus commands us to not be anxious. He wants to convince us that we can trust him. You can trust God. Let's look at his first illustration of birds and food. Verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Let's examine carefully the life of birds, Jesus says. They don't sow, reap, or store up. These are the phases of securing a supply of food. Yet God feeds them. What does he mean here? This word feed means to nourish, to support, to nurture, and bring up. So he provides for them throughout their whole lives. So here's a question for us in this illustration. Do adult birds spend every day sitting on a branch with their mouths open waiting for God to fly bugs into their mouths? No, they're constantly flying around, aren't they? They never stop. They're working hard every day to find food. They do their part. They fulfill God's plan for what they should be doing but they don't let the results or the risks, things out of their control, distract them from doing what God has made them to do. What if there's a worm shortage, one might ask? What if I injure my wing? What if we have another baby chick to feed? What if bigger birds move in next door? No, they keep doing what he's called them to do, and God is faithful to provide for them, and God values you much more than a bird many in our culture sadly actually view humans as lower than birds or animals because there's no question that we destroy and hurt and act selfishly but as sinful as we may be in god's economy humans are way more valuable than animals because only humans are created in the image of god genesis 1:27 because god actually gave humanity dominion over all the earth and its creatures genesis 1:28 and most of all because god loved humans and only humans so much that he gave his only son to die for our sins john 3:16 god values you personally more than any other creature So I encourage you, look out your window. Watch the little chickadee that's sitting there. There are all kinds of risks to its life, but it doesn't spend any time worrying about that. It just does what it's created to do, and God is faithful to take care of it. We must do the same. God's got you. Secondly, Jesus asks a very, very insightful, powerful question. Has your anxiety ever given you anything back, basically? Now, I think we could all agree that anxiety is exhausting, is it not? It takes a tremendous amount of time and energy and thinking. So since we do it all the time, the payoff must be huge for all that effort, right? We keep doing it. No, Jesus says, sadly, the impact is zero. Put another way, if you went all in in some area of your life and you put every bit of possible anxiety you could muster toward it, it would impact the outcome exactly zero. Now, for a second, some of you planners are saying, how does this relate to planning, considering risks, angles, checking, testing? Certainly, we've all experienced the benefits of not rushing in and casting caution to the wind, right? What's different about anxiety that never, ever, ever helps or benefits us? I think this is helpful. Anxiety demands, it doesn't trust, it is never content to trust God. That's what anxiety says. Investing time and energy, stressing and doubting that God will take care of you is always wasted. Let's look at illustration number two. Flowers and clothing. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you of little faith? Let's move on to the lilies of the field, Jesus says. Now these are wild flowers that are out in the open country, in the farmland. He doesn't say... Consider the roses of a garden that are being carefully fretted over. No. Walk out to some random hill sometime this summer. Look around at all the wildflowers. They don't spend a single minute of their day worrying about how good they look. And Solomon, who, by the way was extremely famous for his pageantry and his bling when he's decked out and all his bling did not look as good as one of these. Forget the whole field of flowers. One of these. Grass and wildflowers are a one-season deal. So if something that lives so short a life is so common and so mundane as being cared for, compare that to a human made in God's image. Lilies and grass reflect God's glory without investing any effort. And when they've reached the peak of their beauty, they do fade and die. And if a lily worried about that, it wouldn't gain one extra day of life or beauty, would it? Arguing again from the lesser to the much greater, God proves that his provision for beautiful wildflowers are there and promises that God will do much more. To clothe and to adorn us. And here we specifically see Jesus call out the fact that anxiety is due to a lack of faith in God. O you of little faith! O you incredulous, lacking confidence, trusting little. And having proven that anxiety is fruitless, Jesus triples down on his command at this point. Why? Let me just remind us again because he loves us and he wants to spare us from living in anxiety. So Jesus sort of says, you might not have heard me so far. You may not have been paying attention. You may not have believed. You may not have think I was serious or you missed it. So let me tell you, do not be anxious. Read with me in verse 31. I think you'll see what I'm saying. Therefore... Jesus here mentions the Gentiles, the nations, who have no faith in God. They spend their lives worrying. But your Heavenly Father knows all the things you need, not some. He knows that you need them all. I think we're like kids here. Those of you with kids will certainly be able to understand this, but I think all of us can remember being kids too. The box of cereals running low, and the milk runs out. And we say... What are we going to eat for breakfast tomorrow? We're going to starve. Or this dress doesn't fit. What am I going to wear to the party? Everyone will think I'm ugly. And we as parents, we do overlook things, don't we? But our Heavenly Father never forgets. He's never distracted. He never needs to focus on his own needs He's never uncaring or mean-spirited, never runs out of money or strength or power or love. So, focus on the real problems that you have today and stop wasting anxiety on the hypothetical problems that you might have tomorrow. Focus on the eternal kingdom life of God and his righteousness today. That is what he created you to aim at, to strive after, to crave, to demand. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Let's spend our last few minutes here searching for some more application for ourselves. Now, at the beginning of this sermon, I warned you. If your master is money and wealth, you're going to be feeling disheartened right about now. In fact, you're probably feeling, because of this great rivalry, that you're being asked to be a traitor to your master. But if you choose God, you should be relieved and inspired because Jesus has shown you how to spend your money, how to spend your life in a way that he promises you will not be wasted, stolen, lost, or destroyed, ever. You can only pick One rival. And the time has come to choose a side. May the best God win in your heart this morning. There are two parts to this decision, both with eternal consequences. The first big decision is telling God who you have chosen as your master. And the second part is the daily decision to either support Your master of choice or to undermine your master. Let's listen to Jesus preach on both of these points. He is so, so good at it. First, your big decision. I'm going to read a few verses from Luke as Jesus tells a story. Luke 12, 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to him, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So here's a picture we get, so good, of a person who chose money as his master. He placed his hope in the promises that wealth made him, so he laid up all his treasure for himself here on earth. And he felt great about it. The message translates it, self, you've done well. You've got it made and can now retire. Take it easy and have the time of your life. And in this parable, it's clear that he's right. He's got so much wealth, he doesn't need to think about or work at all for many years. He can really enjoy the fruit of all his hard work. And we Americans love this idea, if we're honest. I worked hard. I built wealth. I earned the right to it. So I'm going to keep it, and I'm going to enjoy it. And I'm not going to feel even a little bit bad about it. Just then, God showed up and said, Fool, tonight you die. And your barn full of goods, who gets it? That's what happens when you fill your barn with self and not with God. God will show up in your life one day with the exact same statement. It could be decades from now. It could be tonight. It actually could be on your drive home today. And all that earthly wealth you've been chasing, you may even feel really good about it, will be gone, will be irrelevant, not your problem anymore. You've got a new problem now, the destination of your soul. And God will say to you, you had a choice to make me master or money, and you chose And your life on earth is now ended. And you will live with the consequences of your choice forever. In outer darkness. With much weeping. The alternative? Let's listen to Jesus again. This time from Mark chapter 8. If anyone would come after me. If anyone would choose me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life Will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I urge you, Jesus pleads with you, let go of this world and take hold of the gospel, the really, really, really good news that Jesus came to die for all your sins on the cross to save you, And then take up your cross and say as Paul did in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Then you become one of his sons, one of his daughters. You become one of his flock. And yes, he asks for all of you, doesn't he? but he also gives you all of him. In Luke 12, Jesus again says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If you seek a right relationship with Jesus first, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So declare to God that you repent of serving yourself. You've changed your mind. You want to be his slave starting today. Not a slave to money. And all these things will be added to you. That is the biggest decision you will ever make. The second part is also important and applies to all of us today, and that is to follow your master every day, one decision at a time. Prove that God is your master and not money. Are there any needs that tug on your heart? Are there any needy people around you? Give to them generously, sacrificially, especially to your fellow Christians, but in any way that will help the needy. And if you can't think of something worth giving to, that is a bad sign. But I've got three ideas for you if you don't have any. I want to be very practical. Sometimes we leave it to your heart to decide. And I think that calling upon us with real needs can be Very powerful. It is for me, at least. So let me just share three. Yours might be different, but listen and think about this as you think about your life and us as a church. Of course, one of the things that we should give to is our church. Well, we have a fund here called the Deacon's Fund, and it is specifically to care for the needs of the people in our midst when they don't have enough. Maybe anxiety is going up in their hearts. How will God care for me? Well, this is one way God has ordained to care. Now, what if the deacons were to come to us, the elders, and say, you've got to tell the people to stop. We have too much for our church's needs. We're we're getting tired coming up with other Christians that we can share this with. You've got to tell them to redirect. Wouldn't that be amazingly cool? Or what about Alternatives pregnancy centers that you hear us talk about sometimes. You know, maybe you don't know, but we live in a state with no protection for preborn humans. And already people are flooding into our state to end the lives of these little ones. Listen to this quote. The demand for abortion in Colorado increased by 33% in 2022. These women are carrying human lives and they're worried about how they'll buy groceries, pay bills, medical care, counseling care if they keep their babies. And Alternatives is trying to raise $60,000 by February 24th. Well, what would it be like if Orchard gave that much money? What if we doubled what they were looking for to make sure that all the needy women and their babies and their partners who are with them in this decision, have what they need to rest and trust that God will provide. We wouldn't do this to show off for pride, not to feel good about ourselves, but because we've been commanded by Jesus Christ to pile up as many treasures as possible in heaven. Jesus is our financial advisor. He's our wealth advisor. And he says the safest best, most long-lasting place for your wealth is in heaven. A third option. We saw a great video that really moved me this morning of these kids, young kids, young adults at Camp Elam. Why not invest a bit of our money in a haven, a place of safety and refuge for kids in the gospel? Our money can do kingdom work there year after year, Getting kids to camp who can't afford it, increasing the number of beds that we can fill, and creating a nice, safe place where they can escape from their normal circumstances and hear the good news that Jesus loves them. Well, as I bring these to mind, as you think about giving and anxiety starts to spike up inside of you, what do we do? Well, Jesus said it three times. So I'll repeat it one more time. Do not be anxious. How? How? Let me encourage you to cast every care on him. Over and over. He never tires. Just keep casting it on him until you trust that he cares for you. Are you not more valuable to him than the birds? More precious than a wildflower? He makes sure they're well fed and beautiful, right? Your Father in heaven knows everything you need. And remember that all your hours of anxious thoughts haven't ever given you a single thing back. So take that effort and pray to God for peace, for stronger faith. Spend that time looking at Him, at His character, His faithfulness, His promises. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Just do what he calls you to do every day. And all these things will be added to you. Will you please stand and pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for drawing our attention this morning to a great rivalry that we may not have even been aware of. We might have been blind to in our own lives and our hearts. We just confess to you, I confess to you, God, that it's real and it's dangerous. And the tug to have treasure here and now is very strong. And the ability to trust you and make good decisions that are wise and plan and consider carefully, but prioritize Eternity are hard to make. And we are of little faith. Will you increase it this morning? In this battle for the God of our lives, it is clear that you are better and you are the best. Work in us today to make this big decision to be enslaved to you and not enslaved to money and help us each day with each decision we make to trust you and follow you and to reach out to others for help, for eyesight that we may lack, that we might serve you in a more powerful way than we have today. We just humbly ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.